Hi, welcome to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, the podcast for women over 45. My name's Karen O'Connor. I'm a blogger, author, entrepreneur, property developer, mother of four, and I've been married for 30 years. I love health and fitness and anything creative, and I'm absolutely fascinated with personal development and psychology. Join me each week for conversations about life beyond 45. I'll have inspiring stories, lots of guest interviews and tips and tricks to hack our brains so we can intentionally and deliberately create an amazing future for ourselves. If it's your first time here, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'd love it if you share this episode with your friends on social media and let me know your key takeaways because I'd love to hear them. Enjoy and welcome to this episode of the Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Hello again. When I started this podcast, one of the things that I really wanted to do was chat to my friends so that they could share their stories. I just love listening to people's stories and hearing the things that people have gone through and the way they've dealt with them. I just find really wonderful and really inspiring. The lady that I'm talking to today, Joanna Dolan, she's one of these women whose stories right at the start I really wanted to share. She's highly educated, really funny. She's a volunteer firefighter over here in Australia. She's a former taxi driver and she shaved her head twice to help raise money for cancer research. 12 years ago, Joe's eldest daughter, Kate, discovered that she had a melanoma. Now, I'm kind of in the space that having a melanoma isn't such a big deal. And I think a lot of people are like this. It's like, well, we live in Australia, you get a melanoma, you go into the doctor's surgery, get it cut out, and that's it. If it's a really big one, you might have to go into hospital and maybe take some drugs, but no big deal, right? When Kate was diagnosed with the melanoma, it didn't go like that for Kate. They couldn't cut the melanoma out and she spent two years in and out of hospital until finally the cancer got into her brain and she died at age 21. What became clear to Joe while she was going through that journey with Kate was that they really didn't know much about their family medical history. They made assumptions, but the truth was very different to the assumptions that they made. And had they got the information that they discovered after Kate's death when she was diagnosed, things might have turned out a little differently. In the 10 years since Kate died, Joe has worked on turning her own experiences and insights into a way of helping and supporting other people going through the same thing, particularly those who are carers to a sick child. She's coming up to her final qualifications as a life coach and is setting up a website to help people record their stories and their family medical histories in the hope that it will make a difference to future generations. When we recorded the podcast, it was almost 10 years to the day since Kate died. I wanted to let Jo tell the story her way. So we had a conversation rather than an interview. And as conversations go, we kind of meandered through everything with no real agenda or order. I've tried to put things into a more logical sequence, but some things might seem slightly out of context or they might sound as though they don't quite follow on from what we were just talking about. Forgive me for that. They're there because they're important and I've tried to do justice to Joe's and Kate's experiences. 
When you finish listening, head on over to the website for information on how to contact Joe and how to get more information about working with Joe to write your own life story and record your family medical history. Because if nothing else, this story that Joe's about to share shows the importance of telling your own story and sharing your knowledge. Over to Joe. Let me ask you this, because this has just come up for me and I'm quite curious about this. Mm. Before Kate died, mm-hmm. were you at all interested in counselling and support? And No, I wasn't at all interested in counselling or anything like that, but apparently everyone told me I was a really good listener. So it was probably just me needing to grow into that role. But when Kate was diagnosed with melanoma and uh, had to go through all the treatment and she said, Mum, I don't want anybody but you as my carer. It just grew out of that, but at the same time I saw that cancer patients are really well catered for as far as the counselling and everything goes, but the carers aren't. Okay. The carers are just sort of tag-alongs that take all the information, do all the logistics. And that was what Kate said. Mum is fine for me because I just have to do what I'm told, basically. But you have to worry about me, you have to worry about where we are, where we have to be, accommodation, flights, getting the next appointment sorted and all that stuff. And she said, said, it's harder for you than me. I just have to go through it. And, And it was just backwards and forwards to hospitals and treatments and all this stuff. But having said that, I actually owned and operated a taxi in Armadale at that time. And I lost out big time financially because I had to keep putting casual drivers in. Probably 40% of my time was consumed with whatever was going on with Kate. And the other 60% was trying to keep my head above water and trying to keep myself together so that my worries didn't transfer to Kate. And, and that, that's the other, the other thing people don't realise, that life goes on around it. Kate didn't need a full-time carer. So I was in a better position than a lot of other people. But Kate did need a carer when she was in hospital and when we went to appointments so that she could actually have a a second pair of ears in the room listening to the information that was being given and just somebody to support her when she came out from a surgery or from from a chemo treatment or or whatever it was because they're they're pretty crook times. (laughs) She was diagnosed the second time in June 2008 and then she died in March 2010. Chemo and the radiotherapy don't work for melanoma. So at the start, there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing except for a few trial drugs for melanoma. That was basically, sorry. Uh, So it was surgery and then the follow-up. So for Kate, it was experimental stuff. And she was an outpatient in the hospitals, so we had to be there for three weeks. But at that stage, that was after four surgeries to excise it from different parts of her body. Yeah, she went on to this experimental treatment. Like Kate said, me having to deal with the logistics and, and making sure that she was picked up and got to appointments. And a lot of people don't know that if you're on cancer treatment, you can't just go in there get all the drugs pumped into you and then walk out because you become really, really, really sensitive to sunlight and all those things. And you just burn to a frazzle, apparently. So we had to sit around in the hospital for ages after the infusions 
she en- ended up on a few trial drugs and they were promising for a while and everyone got excited because things were receding and then melanoma just came back. Some mongrel, mongrel thing. But if Kate had got her melanoma now, I think she would have survived because the treatment over the past 10 years has just, it's just gone ahead in leaps and bounds. But for me, finding the information that I needed to understand Kate's disease, and this was where I probably really got into the counselling, coaching and the interest there, was for a parent of somebody Kate's age, so she was late teens, early 20s as she was going through this, so just striking out in the world and wanting to do her own thing and be independent and then to get struck with something like this where she needs a parent or somebody to look after her and bring her through it because she had no financial resources, she had no partner or anything like that to look after her and she was a a pretty self-contained kid anyway. So it was letting her go and allowing her every now and then to go to the appointments on her own because that's what she wanted to do but she did eventually realise that second pair of ears was rather useful. But because she was that age, if I didn't actually go to that appointment with her, then I wasn't allowed to get the information because uh, she hadn't signed over power of attorney or whatever to me. It's a bloody rude thing for a parent to be pushed out of it because Kate didn't have the intention of me not being allowed to know or anything like that. It's just the way it was. And ethically, the doctors couldn't tell me unless I was actually in the room with Kate or Kate had given me written permission to to question it. And they're, excuse the language, but they're fucking busy because Kate's not their only patient. (laughs) They've got all these other ones and they can't be running around after every carer. There needs to a system behind that to look after the carers because after Kate died here was me I still had to go on so you've got the grieving and even if the patient survives then the carer's role has changed again and they've built their life basically around being a carer and then they have to redefine themselves once the patient so everyone focuses on that and quite rightly but they need to also focus on the other side. The parents who are trying to give their child independence but also just desperately wanting to hang on and that part of the caring there is no counselling, there's no understanding that it is a thing unless you really delve deeply and you you can't find people willing to help and all most of us in that position need is a willing ear and just a shared experience and well this is what I did and this is how I worked through that because everyone suffers their grief differently and some people in the caring game if they've got a a terminal patient uh, that they're caring for will probably be grieving while they're still alive I'm defined a little bit by Kate having had melanoma. Anybody in that circle is defined in part by the role they they are playing, sister, brother, carer, mother. We never really discussed what we had to do, what she had to do and what I had to do. It was just, Mum, you're the only one I want to be here with me. Uh, She didn't want the just the hassle of other people and the dramas that they can sometimes bring to somebody with an illness, be it terminal or just an illness. We always believed, and Kate always believed, even in that last week, she was going to survive. And it came as a big shock to her oncologist, and the whole team just came as a big shock. 
it went to a brain and you don't often come back from that. But really, the last week is the week where she really did suffer because it was, it was just huge in the brain. Because the treatments were experimental and the oblimersin in particular, we actually had to buy it and it was horrendously expensive. So friends did a fundraiser to help us out. My other daughter, she was part of the organising for it. Jen, at that time, she would have been 18 when it started and she turned 21 just after Kate died. Pretty, pretty tough. Part of my grieving, I started um, fundraising for melanoma research because there was not enough around about melanoma and not enough focus was on it. Now, I do support in a pretty big way the Cancer Council because they're about all cancers, which is, I think, important too, and they're also about the carers. They're about providing facilities for both the patient and the carer to make whatever the hate the word but whatever the journey is that they're going through there are things in place there's a few cars that will transport a patient and or carer from here to Tamworth for treatment or here to Coffs Harbour and back and things like that if you can't get there yourself there's that in place there are so many resources out there there are so many of us who've done it and we just need to get the stories out there. So the, the caring side of it and that side of the story, I'm really, really interested in talking to parents of kids like mine in that late teens, early 20s, who can't be independent but want to be independent while they're still alive and can experience at least a few of the things that they really deserve to experience. I'd love to talk to a lot of parents in that thing and get their story and their child's story too but I'm more interested in their caring story and how they got through, how they kept their emotions in check and how they didn't cut the apron strings but they gave them a bit of a slack and how they got through that emotional roller coaster. That's why I came to this idea that those are the stories I wanted and then from that the thing my brother finding this death certificate saying melanoma on it and the penny drop that we might have a little bit of this running genetically through our family and there are some regrets there because we were asked if we wanted to go on a genetic testing program and Kate said why. And I was in the background going, oh, that would be probably useful. And maybe I should have just put my foot down and said, yeah, we should do this. But I didn't. But the realisation is there now that even though we didn't do it, we can save other families. And I've got enough knowledge now to be aware that my grandchildren are at risk. And if I don't get the history, the medical type of history going back a few generations, they're not in as good a position as somebody who knows all the stuff about their aunts, uncles, grandparents, mum, dad, siblings. Because if you haven't got that history, then you can't go to the doctor and say, I've got blah, blah, blah symptoms, and the doctor just goes, oh, don't know, don't know, don't know. But if you go in and say, I've got these symptoms, I've got two aunts who had similar symptoms and they had blah, blah then at least the doctor's got something to go on they can say, okay, we'll do these tests so we can either rule it in or rule it out. So it's, it's actually giving the doctor a narrower field that they're going to have to contend with because a GP can't be an expert on everything. My big focus was on melanoma and learning more about it and, and getting money for the researchers to actually find something that's going to either cure it or at least be able to defeat it once it's in the body. 
So the fundraising thing came before I realised the family history because, I mean, we'd always accepted, yeah, Jude had a melanoma, she had one, but she'd always survived. It was just surgery and, and go on from it. But then we've got to realise that we're Australian, but we are of Celtic stock or we're Anglo-Saxons, we're Normans, we're, we're European, we're pale skins. My mother died when I was 18 months. I had a few grandparents and things like that die. Then my father died when I was 17. So I lost a lot of the family history, especially the medical history, because we were just too young and nobody bothered to pass things on. And then delving into things. The whole family had always joked, we're going to die of a stroke of a heart attack. That's what Dolans die of. And then my old sister had got melanoma and we just thought that was just one of those things because she survived. She's had three melanomas and has survived. So we thought nothing of it. Then my big brother um, started delving into family history and one of our cousins died of melanoma. So we've actually got a few generations of melanoma in the family and, and here's us going, oh no, we're going to die of heart attacks and la la la. It, it occurred to me that we really need to trace a, a little bit more of the family history as far as health goes. I love to hear the whole story, but that is a really, really important part of it, is, is to pass on that Auntie Betty had melanoma and um, Uncle Frank died of a heart attack and my father died of a stroke and, yeah, that's not how it happened. And I just made those up because my father died of a heart attack. <laughs> What is the outcome that you want? Because you said you wanted to collect people's stories and that you want to help people collect their medical history. What's the purpose of that? Well, the purpose is for future generations, number one, is to have the history there because the most important thing about history is the lesson in the history. And here, the lesson is the medical component. At least then there is a record, so that's the lesson there. The second thing is there is nothing better than just letting rip with what your story is because, as you know, everyone has a story and it might seem boring as batshit to you, but to everybody else it's fascinating because mm. it's how people work mm. and human nature is I want to get into your head as much as I want to be in mine and the third thing is once you've told your story you feel like you've been heard and for some people it'll be the first time in their life that they've ever felt that they've been heard they've been listened to and there's the respect that goes with that they feel respected it's aimed at anybody who wants to get their story down. As far as I'm concerned, that should be everybody. As you rightly said, your story from your perspective and my perspective is going to be completely different. And I would be absolutely fascinated, and I'm sure most people would, to hear the story of their grandmother oh. or their great-grandmother from their perspective. So the way I want to do it is I actually want to record people so they can actually tell their story because a lot of people are afraid of writing. If I record the memories and it's going to be based on 10, maybe 12 questions so that they've got a little bit of format to run with and they tell their story around these questions in a certain way and they'll go off in different directions. And So record it and then if they want me to, I will make it into a story of their life in a written form that they can give to their family or friends or look at publishing if they want to. 
there's actually two sides to doing this. One yeah. side is to help the person who's telling the story to clear their thoughts, to clear yeah. their mind and to save that story for posterity. But yeah. the other side of it is if the person chooses after their death or yeah. even or whenever, it can be released so that it's for the family history. Because yeah. I would love to know how it was for my grandmother or yeah. my great-grandmother, yeah. you know, because I just can't imagine from where we are now in our society I can't imagine one of my great 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 aunties or something ended up in the workhouse in Lancashire because she was pregnant one of her sisters took in the baby but the mother stayed in the workhouse for another however many years just to hear what that was actually like to experience would be incredible and you know what we're going through now our grandkids aren't going to be able to relate to because society is going to be completely different but they are going to be, because you've said the question there, you've given the story. So yes, they can relate to it as long as they value history for what it is because there are a lot of lessons in that story. Any story we can tell, there will be a lesson for grandchildren great-grandchildren. There will be lessons because the lesson is what mistakes were made there or what actually happened. What disease did they die of and why? Is there anybody else in my family who died of that? So in the medical sense, how many generations in my family suffer from depression? It's a good question. I I would actually like to catch up with a distant cousin of mine and swap notes about the times that we've fallen apart and why we've fallen apart. Because in my case, it's just my head gets full of too much bullshit and I just go downhill. And I understand that. And people talk to me about when Kate died. They said, but you didn't fall apart then. I said, no, that's not why I go down that track. And maybe I am a bit too tough, but what I show outwardly and what you show outwardly, what anyone shows is not what's in their heart. And it's definitely not what's in their head. And the other thing is about getting these stories out, if you're willing. And obviously some stories you're going to want to share publicly and some stories you may not. They might just disappear forever. So it's not like a tell-all and you've got to come completely bare. But some things like... I mean, and this is the purpose of this podcast, because everybody has an extraordinary story that they've dealt with. No matter who they are, there's something that they've dealt with that has created the person that they are. But it is so fabulous when you're going through something even remotely similar to hear how somebody else has gone through that and how they've dealt with it. What tools and techniques did they use? So when you have your downtimes, you just write. And I know that one of your daily routines is you have to write 500 words a day there's actually a website called 750words.com and i subscribe to it but it is a really good thing because you just have to write 750 words and it can be absolute garbage in one of my down times when i was going through counseling the counselor actually got me writing and i was not allowed to write in sentences it just had to be the words as they came out of my head and handwritten onto paper but People who are going through that sort of thing, it is such a good exercise. You've got to handwrite, you can't type. 750 words obviously is typing, but just handwrite. It's just whatever word comes out of your head and goes through the ink in the pen onto the paper. You do that for a fortnight and you see patterns. And you just go, oh, so that's the bullshit in my head at the moment. Okay. But the 750 words recommended to anyone or find something similar and for people who want it there's badges and there's prizes if you have a streak of 30 days so there's that fun side of it but it is the discipline of every morning just 
getting down, it only takes 20 minutes because you do literally just empty your head. You don't think about the typos or anything like that. So it is really uh, whatever's in your head. That handwriting exercise with just the words, it's a similar thing. It's whatever's in your head. What am I going to talk about this morning? It's going to be about this bullshit podcast that I'm doing today. And I'm like, oh, God, what am I going to talk about? <laughs> so I start the day with an empty head, technically. <laughs> Then I fill it up through the day. But it's actually amazing because some mornings I can just sit there and it's going to be really, really trivial stuff. Then another day something might have happened and I go off and I'll be there for an hour. And what I find with the journaling is it's the stuff that you don't necessarily want to share with somebody, but it's going around in circles in your head. And once you get it onto paper or onto the computer or whatever, it's out into the world. And that's a step towards being more open and free and clearer in your life. Because the thing is, you could go back in three years' time and tell exactly the same story, but it won't be exactly the same story because your experience in that interim has just changed all the focus on the characters and your acceptance of some things three years ago Mm. is not the same as what you accept now. The thing is, once you've actually got it out of your head and onto paper or into a recording, it frees up your mind for so many other things, doesn't it? It Just that journaling experience, just getting the bullshit out of the head It's funny because it came out of nowhere. It was nothing to do with the Cancer Council. It was nothing to do with the Melanoma Institute. It was just me growing in my grief and realising I'd been a writer all my life and I thought, I should be writing this down and just getting my feelings sorted. And, yeah, I had a bit of a meltdown too, so I went and saw a counsellor who actually got me back into the writing and directing my thoughts and journaling and, and all that stuff. And that probably was the start of triggering the memories and just realising that the facilities aren't there to support people through that. So everybody thinks they're Robinson Crusoe and, and they're doing it on their own. To me, I kind of feel like there's this fear of being vulnerable. If we show any upset or grief yeah. or sadness or anger or anything, we yeah. then become vulnerable because we're constantly worried about other people won't think we're good enough or whatever, but it's not like a community. We don't feel part of a community. We yeah. feel like we're individuals within a big group. And yeah. I think that's one of the things... Well, we're walking alone with the headphones we're on. We're walking alone with the headphones on. And I think that's one of the things that you're certainly trying to achieve here, that other people actually can impact us and they matter. And yeah. we matter. We yeah. ourselves matter. The lesson for me is I can get through huge things on a personal level. The number one lesson is I can survive. I, I can stand up in front of a, a room full of a 1,000 people and actually make sense. I never thought that I would be able to stand up and make a speech in public. Then on the bigger picture level, there is this whole thing that there is not the support there for anyone. We've got to start growing that support, and this is my way of doing it. But we've got to get out there and we've got to talk. And I think people are forgetting how to talk. And not only are they forgetting how to talk, but people are forgetting how to listen. This whole concept is really coming from... It might sound a little bit trite, but it's coming from compassion. It really is. Let's get back to showing our emotions and being willing to show our emotions. I mentioned to you the other day that I thought I'd lost that ability to feel and it's something I'm going to have to work on myself. I did Dancing with the Stars. That was way, way, way out of my comfort zone. I don't do that sort of thing, but I did it 
And the whole way through it was just sort of like, oh yeah, okay, I'll go to the practice, I'll learn my steps. And even after it was over, there wasn't that feeling of elation that there should have been because I had actually conquered something that was a big block. And here I was, oh yeah, I've done that, what's for breakfast? So maybe as we age, we do lose the extremes in emotion, but for me, that seems like I've lost something that's pretty important. I recognise it in myself and I'm going, hang on, what's wrong here? But I'm not alone there. There are so many people these days going through that and is it overload? Have we just put barriers on letting that emotion out? And the only way we can do that is by opening up, letting people in. We need to open ourselves up and, as you said, be vulnerable and allow those emotions in again. Perhaps I've had so much shit happen and now I've just got to the stage where, no, I'm not going to let any more of that come in because it hurts too much. But nothing hurts too much. I've I've got to remember I made it through Kate and I still still miss Kate and that is all within me but I've shut down on so many other levels and I'm going, oh, shit, this is not good. Yeah, and that's a boring way to live. I'm going to have to find somebody. So if anybody's out there who wants to discuss this with me so we can actually get our emotions working again, I might have to do Dancing with the Stars again just to get the buzz. Let me go back another couple of steps. When you started looking to support carers and people with cancer and everything, you then did your counselling certification. You're just coming up to your final qualifications, aren't you? I'm actually doing life coaching. I started off with the counselling and I went, you know, no, it's not for me. I don't think counselling enables the client or the patient the way that life coaching does because life coaching is about tomorrow and it gets back to my concept of history being the important thing being the lesson, not the story. Counselling is more about the story than the lesson and using the lesson to live tomorrow. With regards to getting people's story done and the medical history and everything, how can they get in touch with you to do that? I will have, in the next six months, a website set up. But if you want to email me at joanna at writingwriting.com.au, I will get back to you because I want to get this moving and it's getting moving this year. we yeah. better wrap it up there. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Jo! Thanks for listening to this episode of the Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood podcast. I'm Karen O'Connor. Join me next time for more conversation, laughter and fun as we navigate our way through all the things that midlife throws at us. Please click on the subscribe button so you get notifications of new episodes. And don't forget that all the links and information that we've spoken about in this podcast is available on the podcast page of my website. If you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to chat about, or if you have an inspiring story that you'd like to share, I'd love to hear from you. And constructive feedback is always welcome. Thanks so much for listening. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next time. Bye for now.